Welcome, health enthusiasts. You're right on time for Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio, your one-stop shop for all things health, wellness, and innovation. We are here to shake up the status quo in health, advocating for sustainability, equity, affordability, and that sweet spot known as patient-centered care. I'm Greg Masters, your co-host and executive producer, and am joined in the studio by the digital health aficionado himself, author, global thought leader, and might I add, in his executive role, steward servant, Gilbash. Together, we're on a mission to bring you the people, the ideas, and the companies that are not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. On today's menu, Gil chats with Sasha Bakru, PhD, the founder, president, and CEO of Perisphere, Inc., known for its focus on developing antidotes for anticoagulant and antiplatelet agents. So with no further delay, Gil, the mic is yours. Greg, I want to thank you so much for, once again, that magnificent introduction. And I also want to remind our listeners to tune into Greg Masters, Masters of Public Health, and Fred Goldstein on their show, um, Pop Health Week. It's an incredible show. Uh, Greg, by the way, is not just someone involved in public health. He's really in the trenches. And although COVID is, um, we're still really in the midst of COVID. We want to pretend we're not. Uh, Greg has really served a fundamental state role in California really looking at some of the cases and the trends. So Greg is not just a great executive producer, host of his own program. He's actually representing our interest in protecting our health. Greg, as always, thank you. I have an amazing guest today. I have to say to people, I've been chasing Dr. Sasha Bakru down for a few months now. I asked him a few months ago if he'd join us on the program, and um, I'm just thrilled that we were able to lure him in. He is the CEO, the founder and CEO of a company called Perisphere Technologies. And he is, um, he's really a serial explorer, inventor. Um, he has in great patience. Uh, Perisphere is sort of an evolutionary labor of love. It started really one says, I think Perisphere Inc. It evolved to Perisphere Pharmaceuticals, Pharma, and then it evolved to Perisphere Technology. And each iteration of his journey, he was trying to do something that really impacts millions of people's lives in this country alone. Uh, he is also an adjunct professor at Brown University at the medical school there. Um, he really is one of the people we should look very closely at, people who are involved in health technology in the most practical, meaningful way, taking on uh, significant challenges that have actually been created through the evolution of, of medicine, through therapies. So just to bring you all up to date, you're probably wondering like, huh, um, atrial fib, atrial fibrillation is an irregular, irregular rhythm of the left side of the heart. And what happens as a result of that is because the heart is not pumping blood consistently, it pulls actually for a bit. And that pulling for a few seconds, microseconds even, creates or has the potential to create a clot. What happens with that clot? Well, it's like anything that clogs a line in the water system, or in this case, our circulatory system. It has to go someplace. Too often, it can go to the, go to the, to the brain and create uh, a devastating stroke. So 
Um, I want to bring people back in time. You don't really think of this. We've had a number of U.S. presidents who have actually had a fib. Um, Eisenhower, of course, was most noted, was heavily publicized when when he was diagnosed. Um, uh, George Bush, the you know the the, the father, um, actually was an AFib patient, and others. Um, the initial therapy was had various names: warfarin, coumadin, actually also rat poison um, was one of the original names. How did they discover warfarin? Well. A, a herder came home in Montana and saw that his herd was dead in a clover field. And they realized the clover had a chemical in it, warfarin, and it was devastating. But in small micro doses, it actually would become a blood thinner. Now, in the 1990s, there were a series of major studies called SPAF, SPINAF, BETAF, the last one being in Boston major study that showed that this warfarin therapy in low dose would be far more effective even than aspirin. And it became a standard of therapy, but to make sure that it was the right dose and not too much, not too little, we created a tracking system, a way of monitoring this. But as medicine evolves, so does technology need to evolve. Now, obviously, warfarin is used far less today. There are newer therapies called DOAX, and these products really have far less risk of bleeding. They're easier for the panic patient to, to use. They they really reduce uh, the, the sense of, of um, bruising to the fullest extent, and they are the state-of-the-art therapies. Sasha recognized there was a need to develop what they'll call reversal therapies. If someone needs urgent surgery, they need something to reverse the agent. Problem? How do we know that the reversal agent is working? Hence, boom, Perisphere technology. Sasha, welcome to the program. I hope I've represented your journey and the category well. I'm thrilled to have you here because you're one of the most practical people when it comes to technology. Technology that's meaningful, it's needed, it's saving and sustaining people's lives. Um I'd love to hear, first of all, what's going on in your laboratories and in your work with doctors around the United States right now and ensuring them that you can help them um, make it easier for patients to go on these, um, these therapies that protect them against stroke, that help them manage their arrhythmia more effectively. And oh, yes, if, if, if there's need for surgery or need to avoid bleeding, Perisphere Technologies has a solution for them. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now. <laughs> Thank you, Gil, for the uh, very kind introduction. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I, I think um, our point-of-care coagulometer, it's a handheld battery-operated instrument for use in the hospital setting, um, has the chance to take a lot of the guesswork out of um, patient care today. In the emergency department, uh, when somebody is on a blood thinner, you know, today, 90% of new prescriptions for oral anticoagulation are the DOACs, right? Um, so if somebody presents to the ED with, you know, a gastrointestinal bleed or intracranial hemorrhage, so a spontaneous bleed or uh, trauma with associated bleeding or requiring emergency surgery, there's a lot of scrambling and guesswork. Uh, you know, folks 
don't have a quantitative measure today, a way to measure the anticoagulant effect of these drugs. And so you use whatever clinical information is available to you, and you try to determine if the, if the patient is meaningfully anticoagulated or not. If they are, you may choose to intervene in some way, you know, give a, a reversal agent or replacement therapy, and then you don't know if it worked. <laughs> and so, you know, this this problem became apparent to us uh, back in, uh, you know, the early 2010s when we were originally working on the reversal agent that you referenced, right? Today, it's called Siroparantag. And it was in the clinical development program for that drug that we realized we had a problem. We didn't have a good way to measure these DOACs. And so it is since then, you know, going on, you know, 10 plus years now um, that we've been trying to uh, you know, develop and now ultimately commercialize uh, uh, this solution. You know, I, one of the things I found going back to the Coumadin period is that a lot of people who are dealing with um, managing the patient developed, you know, Coumadin tract clinics where yep. patients had to come in every other week, measure their prothrombin times, a, a, an essence of the blood that shows the clotting factor of the blood. And that became for a lot of medical systems a business. And um, and they held on to it. I think from my perspective, you no, know, I'm saying this, not you. So my head's in the noose, not yours. Uh, no, a lot of institutions were were hesitant to move away from Coumadin because they had a corresponding business in measuring the effectiveness of Coumadin in the patient. And obviously the DOACs, to your point, 90 That's the reason that, you know, some folks... Do you do you still hear about um, some hospital systems being reluctant to make the move to the newer therapies that are probably more effective and safer because they have sort of a corresponding sort of business unit, diagnostic unit that deals with prothrombin? Yeah, um, you know, the, the prothrombin time or PTINR, right? Um, you know, there are laboratory versions of that and there are point of care versions as well. And I think remain on warfarin, right? Uh, you're able to test. And if you run into trouble, there is an approved reversal agent uh, that can be used, a four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate. You know, you're, you're giving back these clotting factors, right, to help sort of uh, restore normal clotting. And you can measure, right? You, uh, you know, PTINR is is a great measure for warfarin. It is not for the DOAX or direct oral anticoagulants, right? But, you know, it, it definitely served its purpose. And I think there was, a you know, for warfarin or, or Coumadin, right, uh, there were a lot of things that could affect your levels, right? If you were eating leafy greens, for example, uh, you know, that that's vitamin K. These are vitamin K. Okay. Uh, yeah, VKA drugs, right? Uh, agonists, right? So um, antagonists. So, you, you know, we... Um, we would be, you know, you would an anticipate a lot of testing, right, um, at intervals. And again, it, it, it became a business, right? Um, with the DOACs, one of the, uh, the major advantages is there's not, you know, that required testing for everybody, you know, all the time. However, uh, it is known that, you know, roughly 25% of patients on the DOACs are at risk, right? And that is, you know, it's a geriatric population. They have, you know, renal insufficiency or hepatic insufficiency, low BMI, a history of major bleeding or clotting. You know, for example, they may not, if, if their liver or kidneys aren't working uh, perfectly, they may not be clearing the drug, right? That they're taking every day. 
Uh, and so they could be walking around with elevated levels of these blood thinners, you know, in in, in circulation, and that puts them at risk of a bleed. Now, you I've know, got to, I've got to sort of explore with you a little bit because this is such a unique area that you've decided to take on. First of all, just to remind our listeners, we're not talking about you know a few hundred or a few thousand or a few hundred thousand people. We're, we're talking about you know somewhere in the range of I think plus or minus these days in the United States. Keep in mind, a lot of people need to be on these therapies and unfortunately are, are not effectively diagnosed or treated. But we, we could be talking about 2 million Americans who are, are well, today. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's actually uh, far in excess of that in terms of uh, patients on the DOAC. Just in the EU5 in the United States, it's roughly 20 million patients uh, on the DOAC. So these are some of the most prescribed medications in the world today, right? You know, and... And I'm just thinking about this because, uh, you know, I I think one of the rate limiting factors when people were told they might have to be way back when on Coumadin was I, I don't want to I don't want to do that. Not so much because of even the bleeding risk factor. It was just going in and being checked all the time, you know. And and so people sort of said I don't want to do this. I also think there's a risk that people who have had an AFib and and then in cardio convert, they don't have an AFib, but they really should be on these therapies all the same. So the, the DOACs became really a, a great lifesaver because you know, it, it, it lowered the burden on the consumer to some extent. But yet, to your point with the technology, Sasha, in the hospital system, we still needed to know what was going on if we had to intervene in some way. So I, I have a question for you, and then I have a, I have a really more interesting personal question I want to get to, which was, um, you mentioned that 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 the perisphere technology that the, the the meter is kind of in the in the um, the emergency room or in different, you know, sort of like um, floors. Um, it sounds like the technology has become so simple or easy to use, that you don't necessarily need to be trained on this technology, you don't need to be certified per se on the technology, you just need to know what it is and where to get it. Yeah, so uh, the device is not yet cleared in the United States. Uh, we have a, a CE mark in Europe, but we are planning to launch this technology uh, in, in the coming months. In the hospital, when it is to be used, you, you're correct. It is a point of care near patient testing device that doesn't require you know laboratory training uh, in the way that many other more complicated tests do, right? You know, we anticipate it would be used by, you know, medical technologists, nurses, physicians, if they wish to. But yeah, it, it, it is meant to be simple to use and to yield results within minutes, right? Because in the emergency situation, you know, you can't wait an hour, two hours for, for a result. Somebody comes in with a significant bleed requiring emergency surgery or, you know, they were in a car accident, right? You need to make decisions very quickly and you need actionable data in you know, minutes. Just dropping in, you're right on time for Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio. Today we're chatting with Sasha Bakru, PhD, the founder, president, and CEO of Perisphere Inc., a company developing antidotes for anticoagulant and antiplatelet agents. Stay tuned for the rest of the story. Is is it is it a, is it a multi-time use? Is it a one-time use of the device? How does how does that play out? So there's uh, the system uh, uh, is composed of a reader uh, that is used over and over, and then uh, 
you know, cuvettes uh, that are used. Uh, they're single. Not unlike so. blood glucose monitoring to yeah, some very, extent. Very much like blood glucose monitoring. And In fact, our cuvettes are, you know, roughly the same size as a, a blood glucose test strip. This is, well, this is very big. Look, I don't want to, you don't have to answer this, but I would, you know, knowing having worked in ERs before, I, I would say that almost every patient that comes through at a certain age point or a certain risk factor probably should be tested, you know, because they may not have the uh, the sort of the cognitive ability or the um, or the or the the consciousness to provide all information. They may be brought in by an ambulance service, and you want to know what's what's going on. It's a it's a big risk factor if you want to begin some form of therapy and you don't know what's going on. It sounds like it's easy enough to just say. You know, yep. let, let's do a quick test here and keep moving. Especially in the the older population, right? If somebody comes in subsequent to trauma, it, it's very hard to get reliable information sometimes. And then also compliance is a big issue with a lot of these medications, right? Did they take their last dose, right? Or, you know, were they taking their twice daily medication only once daily by mistake or wh whatever it may be, right? Well, I could see um, this in terms of long-term care facilities. I mean, the application, because of, of what you said is the simplicity of use, you know, sort of this blood glucose monitoring-like technology for, for this drug class is amazing. So I've got to ask the question I really want to ask. Okay. Right, Johns Hopkins trained, <laughs> and you've been recognized by professional societies as an outstanding engineer. You know, you've gotten you know, multiple awards. You you started at Perisphere at, at the inception really as chief technology officer. Um, there's a the certain degree of humility. A lot of founders uh, you know, want to have that CEO title. You were very comfortable being a champion for the idea. Um, and then you obviously morphed into being the, the, the chief executive officer representing the company. Uh, I, I'm just curious, you know, sort of zooming back to Johns Hopkins, if if um, if you imagined when you were studying, you know, for your doctorate and and so forth, if you said, um, "Oh, I'm definitely going to go into you know health technology." I mean, that's that's the field, or or I'm going to go for the big money. I'm going to go for you know systems technology and let Mike Bloomberg. I'm ready to join his team. I mean, what was going on way back when in Baltimore? So you know, I think. Um... Thinking all the way back to to grad school, uh, you know, I I think I I thought I was going to be an academic, to be honest, right? Uh, you know, I I my father's uh, a professor. Uh, he's a nuclear physicist by training, right? Um, I, I uh, my mother's a physician, and so I think biomedical engineering was sort of a compromise. Uh, Why did it make both of them happy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but you know, for me, I I, I love research, right? Um, I, I love the feeling uh, you get with a new discovery or a new invention, right? Um, and that, that to me, uh, you know, a, a natural setting for that was, you know, an academic research lab. I think when we launched, uh, you know, my co-founders and I, uh, when we started Perisphere Inc., it was actually at Brown University where I was a postdoc and then teaching. And we did that through a facilities use agreement with the university. We had access to their animal facilities so we could do, you know, early preclinical studies and the like. And, you know, I, I, I think we had this idea, uh, we sort of pursued it, uh, we got, you know, corporate partners that that were very supportive. And I think at some point, I I realized I kind of had to make a decision, you know, it was either Perisphere is, is, is something on the side, right, you know, that I can support from a distance, but I have to let other people sort of take the reins, or 
I could really own it. That's the direction I went, right? I think I, I think I saw that this was an opportunity to do something in my mind, you know, that was meaningful that could impact patient care, right? And so, you know, I took the leap. <laughs> but how do your parents feel about it? No, they're, you know, I, I, I think uh, they're excited for us, right? You know, um, excited for me, right? Uh, to see something that I helped conceive of, you know, uh, at the bench, right? Making its way to the bedside finally, yeah. right? And no, I think that's- It's just the Brown community, it, no, um, no. Fantastic Brown- place. Yeah. It's a fantastic place. Obviously, as you know, you know Brown, you know, a Brown professor is now at Yale, you know, dean of the School of Public Health. Um, the there's a great um, uh, therapy for um, ALS that was born out of uh, the so Brown so they were they, they were my they were my students, uh, uh, J- Josh and Justin, and I was actually I think their first advisor. <laughs> oh my um, goodness! Yeah, I, I, I was on there. You know, I joined their scientific advisory board. I think a couple of weeks after they you know started the company, I remember meeting them for the first time at Blue State Coffee. Um, you know, right, right next to the campus. And, you know, they were, they had this idea and they, and they just wanted to know, you know, how do you do the studies required to file an IND and start and run a clinical trial? And, you know, I had just been through a lot of it. Right. And so I think you're, you're inspiring another wave of investigators, of uh, innovators, you're, you're inventing, you have a passion for this. I, I wanted to ask you with Perisphere Technologies, you're obviously not stopping here with with uh, looking at coagulation. You, I, I, I just sort of feel like you're you're at the blast off point. So without asking you to divulge any proprietary information, you've got to got to give us a hint. What, what else is on the drawing board? We've been focused a lot on clotting time and the DOAX, right? But I, but I think you know, stroke uh, is an area that's that's really you know underserved in terms of technology. Um, and in particular, you know, ways to monitor, for example, you know, administration of clot busters, you know, TPA is a is a tough medication to, to use. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that you can't really identify folks who have a, you know, bad response to it, right, who go hyperfibrinolytic, right, that puts them at risk of a bleed. And so I think that's an area where we're very interested in. And, uh, you know, I think in the future, uh, hopefully we can offer some uh, you know, solutions to, uh, you know, folks trying to to deal with thrombotic strokes in particular. You know, what I'm, I'm really sensitive to is that, you know, often we invent therapies. I'm wondering if, while the, the Kuma clinics were very sort of centralized, unintentionally, are you democratizing the possibility around um, anticoagulation therapy, about AFib therapy? Are you making it possible for primary care even to go back into the field of taking care of patients and making sure they're they're adhering to therapy and feeling safe and confident about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think it is very important for, you know, the, the prescribing physicians, right, the primary care physicians, as well as, you know, some of the specialists like cardiologists, right, to be able to, you know, before you put somebody on therapy, uh, you know, check their coagulation status. And, you know, once they're on therapy, make sure they're responding in the way that you would expect them to. Um, Make sure that they're not accumulating the drug over time, right? Putting them at risk of a bleed. And again, that doesn't need to be done in some centralized laboratory setting or in a a clinic that's, you know, dedicated to testing, right? That that should, and, and that can and should be done ultimately, you know, 
by the folks prescribing these medications. Yeah, you know, was there any reason why you decided to look at AFib? I mean, uh, this is a very specialized area. Why did you jump into this pond? <laughs> yeah, it was um it's an interesting thing. My, you know, my co-founders and I, we were interested in originally developing an oral formulation of heparin, so low molecular weight heparin, and we designed mm-hmm. a molecule that bound to low molecular weight heparin, you know, started testing it, right, in, in preclinical models. And, and we realized, you know, we could get the, the drug into the blood, but it was inactive because this carrier molecule we designed was still attached, right? And so then we thought, well, what else can we do with this? And it was actually at the time, there were labeling issues with low molecular weight heparin and, you know, nurses were for, uh, for you know, for pediatric patients pulling, you know, 10,000 IU dose files rather than 10, and they were accidentally being overdosed with low molecular weight heparin. It was it was an issue. It was in the news. I know there were some yes. you know celebrities, children who were affected and the like. So it, it it got attention, and so we you know we tested. We you know we 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 said, look, maybe this could be a reversal agent for first low molecular weight heparin, and then ultimately the DOAX. And that's how we sort of went down this path, <laughs> ultimately leading to the diagnostic, which again is not only for the DOAX but also for low molecular weight heparin. You know, I've loved having you on this program because often, you know, we're talking about big picture policy issues and we are obviously stroke prevention. No, stroke is the number five killer of men and women in this country. We we tend to forget that we, we have to do more. How do we do more? Well, certainly we have to make sure people are on therapy. We have to make sure they're on the right therapy and the right dose and adhering to the therapy. You know, one of the great aspects of what you're doing, Dr. Buckaroo, is you're a a practical big gun inventor. You're you're doing things that are practical, understandable, and life-saving. I want to thank you so much for being on the program today. And I've got to say, I, I want you back. I want to hear what the next big thing in the laboratory is going to be, because I, I just have a feeling someone like yourself, you've just started. Thank you so much for joining us today on Health Unabashed. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that, dear listeners, is the last note for today's melody. A huge thanks to our worldwide audience for listening in. And a shout-out to our future guest, Sasha Bakru, PhD, the founder, president, and CEO of Perisphere, Inc. To keep tabs on Dr. Bakru's work at Perisphere, follow on Twitter via at Perisphere Tech and on LinkedIn via www.linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash perisphere hyphen technologies or sasha's personal linkedin www.linkedin.com forward slash i n forward slash sasha bakru s-a-s-h-a-b-a-k-h-r-u we stream live on healthcare now radio three times a day monday through friday at 10 30 a.m 6 30 p.m and 2 30 a.m eastern or for your west coast peeps like me 7 30 a.m 3 30 p.m and 11 30 p.m pacific for more information or to access on demand replays of our work go to healthcarenowradio.com and select health and abash from the programs tab Stay social with Gil and me on Twitter via Gil underscore Bash, and that's B-A-S-H-E, and Greg Masters, M-P-H, and that's Greg with two Gs. Don't forget to give your tweets some zing with our hashtag, HealthUnabashed. Until we meet again, pursue your passion for better health and no apologies. <laughs>